Thank you all for being here for our final session of this uh, two-day, I guess, whatever, almost 24-hour conference, but over two days. Um, I, I'm immensely grateful for all of the questions for our, our, our speakers. Um, and I also want to express other gratitude, as I said, that I've, I've been thanked too many times when actually all the credit is due to so many others. The, the panels and the lecture last night have been um, truly illuminating and disturbing and staggering and startling and useful. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. I'm also just grateful for, to all the people who, who made this conference happen. So I'm gonna, if you give me like one minute, I just need to go through all the things that you've already heard, but I need to be said again before we depart here today. Um, thank you to the faculty for funding this conference. Thank you for, to the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at the Law School and the Religions and the Practice and Peace Initiative at Harvard Divinity School for helping to co-sponsor it, for the student organizations who have helped support it, Harambe, students of African descent, the low-income student advocates, and the Harvard Prison Education Project. I'll say more about that in a second. Um, I also wanted to thank our support staff who have been truly, truly indispensable, instrumental, and magical in their, uh, their efforts. Matthew Turner, uh, Jennifer Conforti, uh, Margie uh, Jennings, uh, and uh, student, uh, Karen uh, Gundler-Whitaker, and also our student workers, Salvatore, Angel Calvin, and Nicole. So I also want to say another thing about Nicole. She's hopped up here a couple times to talk about the prison education project, and she's plugged it a couple times yesterday and this morning. I'm going to plug it again. It's open to everyone. It's not just for students. My first year on the faculty here, I had a student tell me about it, and I, I started visiting MCI Norfolk, and, uh, uh, and that was really, I mean, Michelle said this started on the red line, but for me, this started in the visiting room at MCI Norfolk. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I could say more about that, but, but if you are affiliated with Harvard Divinity School or Harvard in any way and you care about these issues, please go to that meeting next Thursday uh, and learn more about how to be involved here. So thank you all, and uh, oh, one more thing I had to do, sorry. So uh, in, as a follow-up to this event in about two weeks, a little over two weeks, I don't actually know what, yeah, it's about two, is it about two weeks? I don't know, November 8th, it's a Wednesday. November 8th at 6.15, we are going to be screening a film called Rikers. Um, Glenn Martin, who we're, who's going to speak to us, was, helped found the Close Rikers campaign, and this film will be screened. We'll have food there also, um, and it will be open to the public. And I'm just going to show the trailer for that before I introduce our guests for today. It was the daytime, but it felt dark. It's so much stuff going through my mind, but the main thing is hoping that I do make it out. It looked like a monster, like we were about to go into the belly of a beast. Once you're there, it's easy to get there, but it's hard as hell to get out. It's gladiator school, for real. Complete upside down kingdom. Everything that means something to us here doesn't mean shit in there. It was total chaos. It was violence. I was scared. I was literally cowering in the corner. The worse you do, the bigger you are. I've seen men rape other men. If you get there and you don't have a weapon to defend yourself, you have an issue. I was screaming, help me, help me. They're raping me, they're raping me. I was literally hogtied. It's kicking me. It broke my nose. It's spitting on me. It broke a bone on my back. It's madness. My sanity was chipped away, little by little. Solitary confinement is rough. I know. You can really go crazy. You start befriending the roaches and the rats. I started to feel like an animal. I actually contemplated suicide. 
My name is Reverend Hector Bienvenido Custodio. Ismael Nazario. Damian James Stapleton. Kathy Morse. Marcel Neal. Barry Campbell. Raymond Yu. For all of you who've been here, you already know what to expect. For those of you who have not been here before, tie in your pants. It'll be 6.15 on November the 8th in this room. So please join us for that follow-up event as we continue, try to continue and further the work of this conference. Speaking of continuing and furthering the work of this conference, uh, let me turn now to our guests for this final panel um, uh, where the topic is, is activism and the study of religion and uh, what we can take from this place and, and, and how we can move forward. Our, our first speaker today uh, is Mr. Glenn Martin. He's the president and founder of Just Leadership USA which aims to cut the correctional population in half by the year 2030. Uh, Mr. Martin was incarcerated in the state of New York for six years in the early 90s, and he's a recipient of multiple human rights awards and honors, including the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award and the Brooke Russell Astor Award. He's made frequent media appearances, uh, including in such places as NPR, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, Al Jazeera, C-SPAN, and uh, perhaps most notably in the film 13th. Uh, Beverly Williams is a lifelong Boston resident and a retired Boston public school teacher. She's been engaged in advocacy for criminal justice reform for the last two legislative sessions through her work with the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, where she leads these and other efforts for, for greater social justice here in the Boston area. Next, we have uh, Kaya Stern, who is a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and teaches courses there in trans, uh, transformative justice. Uh, she has a PhD from, from Emory. She guest lectures in my introduction to ministry class each year, and so I'm grateful for her colleagueship here at, at Harvard. She is co-founder and director of the Prison Studies Project since 2008 here at Harvard, and she's the author of the book, Voices from American Prisons, Faith, Education, and Healing, which came out with Rutledge in 2014. Carlene Griffith-Saku is the founder and principal consultant of the Dignity Project International. She has her MDiv from this institution. She's a transnational human rights strategist and has worked as an organizer, public speaker, preacher, and advocate uh, really around the world for many movements, including the Movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, the Movements for Pan-Africanism, for Palestinian and, and Dalit liberation, Afro-Indigenous land rights, and immigrant and migrant self-determination. And finally, Mr. Rasan Hall is a lawyer and uh, advocate in, in this area. He's a director of the Racial Justice Program at the Massachusetts ACLU. He has a long record of, of work in civil rights and economic justice, and he also spent a time working as the assistant district attorney for Suffolk County. He has his JD from Northeastern University and has an MDiv from Andover Newton Theological School, Theological School and is also ordained a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal uh, Church. So these are our panelists. We are grateful that they're here, and without further ado, let me invite Mr. Martin up to give his remarks. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I usually feel like the smartest person in the room until I come to Harvard. <laughs> I sat in the overflow room and I listened to that panel and I almost left and went home. Um, but I assume I was invited here as the activist and, and not as the academic. And so I will uh, speak to what I know and, and what I do day to day and uh, try to help you understand why it's so important and hopefully uh, create an opportunity for my co-panelists uh, who I feel honored uh, to be sitting next to today to uh, respond um, to these things. And I think we're cutting the time a bit shorter uh, than we originally thought, which means I'm actually going to abandon most of these notes that I took to try to make me sound as intelligent as the people who were on the previous panel. Um, so 
Hmm, where do I start? So I run an organization, Just Leadership USA. It was created three years ago. Uh, it was created 13 years after I left prison, after serving uh, six years. Um, I came out of prison and faced all the barriers that most people face after serving time, barriers to housing and employment and voting and so on. Um, but 13 years later, I found myself in an extremely privileged position as a senior vice president of a very large nonprofit, spending a lot of time in front of state legislators and governors and mayors and ultimately the president of the United States. And I asked myself, uh, as someone who's constantly in front of audiences, challenging them to recognize their privilege and not step away from it, but wield it alongside people of less privilege, uh, what was I gonna do with the privilege that I had amassed uh, over those 13 years? And I took a week off and spent some time at home uh, thinking about where we were in this country with respect to mass incarceration. And why did it seem like we were having a series of moments, uh, but not a movement? And it happened to be the, 30th, uh, the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And so I'm home with my three-year-old Joshua, and I'm in this space, and the speech is playing on television over and over. And I think about the fact that we live in a country where over 70 million Americans have a criminal record on file. And I ask myself, what would the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King say is missing uh, from the field of criminal justice reform? And I believe that he would say uh, that it would be an investment in the very people who've been most harmed by the system. The fact that people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from power and resources. And so I built the organization uh, on that theory. And so we provide a year-long leadership training called Leading with Conviction to formerly incarcerated people from all over the country. In less than three years, we've trained uh, 366 people in 29 states plus DC. Uh, folks with all sorts of conviction records, we do not ask about the type of conviction during our application process very deliberately because we want to build an organization with leadership of, uh, that reflects who we lock up in this country. And, uh, and to be even more pragmatic, the surveys uh, that have been done on this issue actually say that the better job you do of explaining to white Americans that the criminal justice system disproportionately affects black Americans is the less they want to do anything about it. And so we wanted to emerge with a cohort of leaders that helps white Americans understand that if you compare America's incarceration system to any other country in the world, that they also are disproportionately impacted by mass incarceration and all of the collateral consequences that stem from it. And so that really was the birth of Just Leadership USA. About a year and a half into the organization's growth, uh, we spent the majority of our resources investing in these leaders, and then we turned our sights towards advocacy and organizing, which is what we really care about. We do leadership training toward movement building. The leadership training is the idea that, by definition, the folks who have been most marginalized have had the least amount of access to resources, including uh, an investment in their leadership. But at the same time, uh, even though that's a significant portion, portion of our budget and our work, uh, ultimately, what we care about is ripping down systems of oppression and recognizing that historically systems of oppression are durable and they replicate themselves right under your nose while you're working to dismantle them. And so we said to the leaders that we train, particularly in New York where our office is located, well, what would you have us work on to dismantle the system? I mean, our mission is to cut the number of people under correctional supervision in this country in half by 2030. And here we are sitting in New York and we have this torture island in our backyard. And across the board, our formerly incarcerated leaders said, we would like to see transformational 
change and not transactional change. And we'd like for you to grab the most insidious part of the system and work to dismantle that and said to us, you should work to close Rikers. Well, that was a lonely place to be 18 months ago saying that out loud in front of an audience. But we trusted in the fact that if we invested in the vision that people who had been harmed by Rikers had, that we'd get to the finish line because they would put the boots on the ground to get us there. And then the elites, and when I use that term, I'm also being inclusive of folks from faith-based institutions, but also elected officials and other elites would ultimately align themselves with a movement that had some traction. And so let me talk a little bit about that. You guys hopefully will come back to see the film Rikers, but some of the statistics, some of why going after the closure of a jail made sense. I mean, we all, we all the entire time we knew that there were concrete policy reforms that needed to happen. Speedy trial reform, bail reform, discovery reform, because to close Rikers, you have to cut the population in half. And those are the really concrete policy mechanisms that you need to trigger to be able to get there. But people who are suffering at Rikers day to day don't want to have a conversation about building a campaign around a piece of legislation, right? It's not what gets them fired up. It's not what feels like it's addressing the fact that their brother gets thrown up against a wall being stopped and frisked day to day in the middle of Manhattan, or their mom goes to visit her child at Rikers and it takes seven hours to visit him for an hour and she's disrespected by the correction officers, or uh, uh, his sister is gonna visit her boyfriend at Rikers and when she gets there, the correction officers are sexually harassing her on her way in to see her partner. So a little bit about Rikers and why Rikers. On any given day at Rikers, there's about 10,000 people there. That is down from 22,000. When I got locked up at Rikers, there were 22,000 people. I was 16 years old the first time I went there. I got arrested for shoplifting in Manhattan. I went in front of a judge, and the judge wanted to teach me a lesson. And in New York, if you're 16, you're charged as an adult for the last uh, few decades. And so I find myself at Rikers Island, and when I get there, there's all of these other children. And notice I'm using, I'm being very deliberate about the language that I'm using. I could be saying inmate and convict and offender and all of the other words given to us by the system to dehumanize people in the system. I was a child, they were children. We were housed at Rikers, there were thousands of us, 22,000 altogether in a facility that's meant to hold 14,000 people ever, even at the height of the, um, uh, mass incarceration in New York City and nationally. And the second day I'm on my way back to court, the judge knew I'd be coming back the next day. I think that was part of him sort of scaring me and teaching me a lesson. And I'm in a cell and the cell is meant to hold about 20 people and there's about 35 people in the cell. And a young, uh, another child walks up to me and he says, give me a jacket, predator or prey. You have two choices on Rikers. There's nothing in between. And those are the sort of moments where you have to make a decision. To avoid violence at Rikers, you have to be violent at Rikers. And we found ourselves fighting in that moment. And I suddenly realized I was fighting four other uh, young people in that cell. And by the time I emerged, I realized that I was bleeding from my neck and from my back. I was stabbed four times during that interaction. But that wasn't what was most difficult, folks, even as a 16-year-old. Rikers is called gladiator school. So if you can have a fight like that with five people and emerge on your feet, then you're a gladiator. That judge taught me a lesson in that moment. At least I thought that's the lesson he was trying to teach me. Can I handle the worst 
that New York City has for its children. And three, four, about five years later, I found myself back at Rikers to serve a year before ultimately serving five years in prison. And this time on the way to Rikers, going over the bridge, I remember saying to myself, I'm not gonna be the victim, I'm gonna be part of the culture here and I'm gonna survive. And let me tell you what the culture is. On any given day, these days, today, there's 10,000 people on Rikers. So we've already cut the population in half at a time when crime is down in New York City to levels of 1961. 80% of the population are not convicted of a crime. So 80% are folks who just cannot afford bail, are sitting on Rikers anywhere between a year and 10 years. Not convicted of a crime as a detainee. 89% people of color in a city that's 56% people of color. 41% have a mental health diagnosis. 75% of the women, the 600 women at Rikers, have a mental health diagnosis. We spend $247,000 per bed per year on Rikers. We have one correction officer for every detainee. That doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. In some of the most amazing prisons in Norway, you don't have one correction officer for every detainee. The island was purchased from a man named Richard Riker. Richard Riker had the title of recorder in New York back in the early 1800s. Recorder and that title meant that he oversaw all of the criminal courts in New York, Richard Riker. Richard Riker also was part of the kidnap club. At nighttime, he and his white male buddies would go out and kidnap young black men and bring them to court the next day and have property hearings and send them back to the slave catching south. This is the piece of property that was purchased from, uh, by New York to create Rikers Island. It was 87 acres of land. It ultimately grew to 420 acres of land. In fact, it's grown so much, it's about 200 feet away from LaGuardia Airport. Most people don't realize that. It's a stone throw away from LaGuardia Airport. Why does that matter? Because when you build a jail in such close proximity to an airport, there are architectural uh, differences to a jail that's built safely. Jails that are safe are podular. Rikers is flat and linear. I have a brother who grew up to be a correction officer. Thanksgiving's difficult at my house. <laughs> but I wouldn't want my brother to work at Rikers. Why? It is dangerous for a correction officer to go down a cell block with 50 cells to break up a fight or to stop an argument. So what do correction officers on Rikers do? They deputize a couple of people that are serving time to keep order and to manage the other 50 people on the cell block who are serving time. As you can imagine, when you give away that authority, you never get it back. That's a bit of a snapshot about Rikers, and hopefully what you're hearing is that this place is sort of the culmination of everything that's wrong with uh, our uh, incarceration system in the United States, and that Rikers stands as a symbol of the most insidious parts of that system. So what did we do? We launched this campaign, the Close Rikers campaign. The first time I had a chance to talk to our progressive mayor, Mayor de Blasio, was at his, you heard the sarcasm? <laughs> was, <laughs> you guys are good or you follow my Twitter account. Um, <laughs> uh, I was at his inauguration and within an hour of him becoming mayor, I stood online to take a picture and I said, you know, Mr. Mayor, with all due respect, I'm here to tell you to close Rikers. And he sort of blew me off and said, I don't understand why, why would you say that? With everything I just shared with this audience, he's the mayor. Um, he's been a citywide elected official before he became mayor. Um, and in some ways, he challenged me to go out and build this campaign to help answer that question of why. 
And we did, but we did it in a very unique way. We invested, again, not in elected officials, not in other elites in New York City, not in people who were most privileged, but in people who literally were walking off Rikers every single day, in the people who actually could tell the stories of what it was like to serve time on Rikers, the women who found themselves sexually abused on Rikers, the men who found themselves beat into comas on Rikers Island. Why? Because we believed that if New Yorkers better understand, better understood what exists in their name, that they would be motivated to do something about it. That if we challenge the very values that drive that system and help people understand that Rikers and our criminal justice system in the United States writ large essentially has retribution and punishment at its core and has lost things like redemption and transformation and second chances and hope and opportunity, that New Yorkers would stand up and do the right thing. And by any stretch of the imagination, this campaign was hugely successful. In 12 months, we got the mayor to change his position, even though publicly he was calling us naive, he was saying, no way, it's too difficult, uh, it's too expensive and everything else, that the mayor finally came about saying we absolutely should close Rikers. And unfortunately, in that moment, he actually closed off City Hall to the very people who helped get him to that point um, and, and said we should close it in a decade. And as you can imagine, if you're living day to day with the horrors of Rikers, hearing that our progressive mayor suggests that we should wait a decade to close Rikers with the daily abuses that stem from that place was a slap in the face for the folks who had worked so hard to get him to that point. By the time we got to that point, we had 165 organizations on board. And these were all sorts of organizations. They were reentry organizations, housing organizations, folks who provide employment to people with criminal records, and ultimately faith-based institutions and faith-based leaders. We brought the faith-based leaders on board when we got closer to the end of the campaign for a couple of reasons. One, I have been challenged with what has, in my opinion, as an advocate and an organizer, become a very difficult scenario in New York where many of our faith-based leaders have found themselves far too aligned with many of our elected officials. And I mean, I've been doing this work for 15 years and I literally have seen the transformation over those years in terms of who's willing to come to the table. I mean, we did rallies, we did marches, we did billboards, we did television ads, we did print media, Twitter, Twitter chats, we did videos, we did IP targeting of the mayor, we bird dogged the mayor. The mayor went to Florida, we went to Florida. We had already done the huge lift. In fact, because we started with such a bold campaign, the things that seemed like high-hanging fruit before, getting the 16 and 17-year-olds off Rikers, not building a new billion-dollar jail, getting folks out of solitary confinement, those things became low-hanging fruit. We won those things before we even got to the point of the mayor saying yes to close Rikers. But the role of faith in the campaign itself is that religion can, religion can be disruptive, it brings to the table worldviews and moral systems and organizations of religion can serve to either legitimate systems like Rikers Island or disrupt those systems and challenge those systems. And it has been a lift 
to get our faith-based leaders to the table. And I hope that that is sort of part of the discussion that we have here today. When you think of the traditions of uh, movements, alignment with uh, faith-based institution, whether it's the one we refer to the most, the Black Civil Rights Movement, um, or others, Poland Solidarity Movement, Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979, South African Anti-Apartheid Movement, you name it. I have been totally taken aback at how a place like Rikers Island, which many New Yorkers now refer to as Torture Island, could be something that exists without faith-based folks in leadership. Why? Because we can make a financial argument for closing Rikers. That will not get us to the finish line. If you look historically in this country, those arguments are double-edged swords. We need a moral argument to get us to the finish line. And so I am pleased that now that the campaign has picked up so much traction and is sort of in the consciousness of New Yorkers, and now that we're pivoting the campaign towards the state and the governor and the legislature because we are going after the things like bail reform and discovery reform and speedy trial, the things that we're actually gonna need to be able to cut the population in half and have a smaller, uh, more humane system until we take another swing at our criminal justice system, that those very elected officials that stand on their pedestal and use uh, values that you'd find in any Bible or any other scripture and suggest that their moral authority comes from their religious beliefs, I think that we need folks of faith to stand up and challenge those things. When I think of Governor Cuomo, he is someone who holds himself out as a, um, as a Christian, as someone who makes uh, decisions based on his faith, and at the same time, it is, I think, the responsibility of faith-based leaders in New York to stand up and say this is morally wrong and to challenge him on those statements and to hold him accountable. I have a ton of other notes here. I want to be respectful of the rest of the panel. I think I had 20 minutes. I feel like I'm at about 20 minutes, yeah? No? Couple more minutes? Okay, I'll go for a couple more minutes. So, so, so I want to give one or two examples, and then I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, here's an example from the Close Rikers campaign of how more recently faith leaders have come on board. Um, we did a vigil outside of Gracie Mansion at one point to sort of turn and pivot in the messaging in the campaign. So we did it in front of the mayor's house very uh, deliberately. Um, we did it uh, close to uh, Thanksgiving because we thought that that was a holiday where uh, some of the messaging from the faith-based community would resonate the most, particularly with the public, but hopefully also uh, with the mayor. And Reverend Lewis from Middle Collegiate Church in Manhattan's East Village spoke uh, in front of the mayor's house, and she said, quote, Rikers is a place dangerous to the flesh, a place where surviving turns you inside out and erodes your soul, a place of faith. As, as people of faith, it is our moral responsibility to stand for the marginalized, to have compassion for the children of God who are behind bars, whose lives are shattered, and who live in danger every day. Uh, Rabbi Jesus, the leader of our movement for revolutionary love, said, when we care for the hungry or thirsty, the strangers needing clothes, the sick or the incarcerated, we have cared for them. At Just Leadership, we say people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. The corollary to our slogan is that as a function of our extreme marginalization, people who've been in the system, we're also furthest from the 
from power and resources, as I mentioned earlier. And one of the places that we look to to bridge the gap is the faith community. And the faith community does an amazing job of uh, prison ministries and coming into prisons and, and sort of pulling people up when they're at one of the most difficult moment in their lives. And at the same time, I think that the faith community can be reminded of the critical role that it has played in, in movement building and in going helping us go from moment to movement and to holding our decision makers morally accountable. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, again, my name is Beverly Williams, and I am an organizer with GBIO. It's easy to say GBIO. It stands for Greater Boston Interfaith Organization. And we are composed of 40-plus faith-based religious institutions. And that looks like Christian institutions, um, uh, Muslim institutions, Jewish, Jewish institutions. But one thing that I want to start with um, first, before I even get into telling you more about what, what I do, is I really want to thank um, Michelle and Matt for inviting me to be part of this impressive um, panel. And I just look at these people here that are out here doing some of the work that I'm doing, I look at them as giants. And that's very important to me when I use that word giant because I think words are very powerful. And when we talk about Bible stories, I think the biblical character that I would connect myself to would be Moses. Um, and, and, and that's another story. But I remember that one story. <laughs> Moses sent out spies to survey the promised land. And when they went out, there was 12 of them. And when they went out, 10 of them came back and they said, there are giants. The land is fruitful, but there are giants out there, and we are going to get swallowed up, and we're going to be like grasshoppers. And that's important to me, because when I was a child growing up in Mission Hill Projects, there were systems of oppression that made me feel as a child, and I could even see my father feeling as if he were a grasshopper. And those systems of oppressions were very important because it helped to develop a passion for what I do now, an affinity for going out there and finding people and empowering them. And GPIO's organizations helps us do that. But for decades, I, I lived in systems of oppression. It was the welfare system. I remember when my father came home from the service. And we, the projects then, they were built for return and veterans. And we lived in the projects, but my father had TB and he really never got up on his feet. So I remember my father and my mother going to the welfare office to apply for AFDC, aid for families with dependent children, aid to families, families with dependent children. But they stripped my father and criminalized us for being poor because he couldn't live in the house. So early on, it was like the black family, again, was torn apart. A man could not be in the house and receive this type of assistance. It was very oppressive, and it broke my father. After a while, there were, we had this joke, nobody in the projects has a father. They were all invisible. They all had to hide. 
And so even as a young girl, I saw oppression. And then we move into the 60s, and there's the draft and the Vietnam War. And I saw men disappearing. And when they came back, they came back broken. They did not come back whole. And that was the first drug crisis that I realized. And nothing was being done about it in my community like it is now. I don't think anybody should have to suffer for it, but I remember that. And then the crack epidemic. And I was a Boston public school teacher then, and I saw families torn apart by that. Systems of oppressions. And now here we are, and we have this whole incarceration problem. The speaker last night talked about systems, places, are put in place before people are actually incarcerated. And I want to share that story with you because I describe myself as a grasshopper. But it's, what report are you going to believe? Because two of the spies came back and said, we can overtake them. Mm -hmm. And so here I am, a young girl growing up, seeing the brokenness of my father, the split of families, and there is just something that I know that is not right with this. And so my compassion, my love for my father, and my compassion for my community led me to do social justice work. GBIO, because it is faith-based, I said, this is where I need to be. But what's more important about GBIO is that they're just not, um, it, it, they're just not talking it, they're doing it. And they're finding people like me people who are going to fight, people who are not going to back down, because this is important to me. So when we talk about the voiceless, there are a lot of voiceless people out there. There are the people who are incarcerated, the people who were incarcerated, the people who are incarcerated in their neighborhoods. In one neighborhood where I live, every other house has somebody incarcerated in it. That's like being in jail already. All of the dehumanizing things that are going on, they're going on in our neighborhoods. We're in prison in our neighborhoods. People coming home and they have the ankle bracelets. We're in prison in our own neighborhoods. So what do we do? We find people like that. We train them. We develop leadership. And those are the people that are going to hold on to not just their morals, but they're going to hold on to the sensible things that need to happen. And so, you know, I'm very proud that on our criminal, I co-chair a criminal justice action team, and on our team, we actually have people who are recovered drug addicts, people who are formerly incarcerated. So when I look at my criminal justice strategy team, it is not a bunch, and, and, and I appreciate this, um, I, I appreciate the scholars I'm learning, but we are not necessarily talking about concepts. We're talking about real lives. We're talking about real pain and what needs to happen. And when it says go to the uttermost parts of the world, for me, that may have been going right down there to City Hospital on Harrison Avenue and going up uh, Methadone Mile. That may be the uttermost part of the world. And GPIO is made up of a lot of white people. A lot of white people. And those white people are following me right down there. <laughs> and, and we're going to, and 
we have a meeting coming up, and, and somebody says, well, can we do it at 5? I said, are you kidding? At 5 o'clock, they may be high. we got to do this the first thing in the morning. But these are the people that we are talking to. These are the people that are going to make the difference. These are the people that need to be talking with our, with our senators. I remember we had a delegation meeting, and I brought a, a returning citizen, and he told his personal story. The Senate president was at our delegation meeting. And he told his story in, a front, in, a front, in front of about 300 people, the Senate president. And when he got finished speaking, Senate President Stan Rosenberg came up to the mic, and there was a silence. And he put his head down, and he said, I am sorry, I got this wrong. And I dare to say, my colleagues have gotten this wrong. And we need to do something about it. And that was the very year that we got a legislative bill passed that freed up 7,000 7, returning citizens from having their licenses taken away from them because they, were, they had been convicted. And so these are the people that we need to have there. But I also want to say, it's not just our legislators that we have to begin to tell our stories to and change the narrative. Christians are people. They're simply people. And I cannot tell you how many times that people have a, a knee-jerk reaction when I tell them the kind of work that I'm doing. And they say, we shouldn't be involved in politics. The church shouldn't be involved in politics. And I was saying, well, what do you mean about that? The church shouldn't be involved in politics. We should. We need to be front and center to this. And if you look at when Jesus says, give that to Caesar's, that which is Caesar's, and to God, that which is God's, I think what Jesus is telling us is that Caesar has a democracy. And we have to be part of that democracy. We have to be participating citizens. When Paul and Silas were jailed because they, um, they broke up a scam. You know, a woman was doing fortune telling and they broke up the scam and, you know, the magistrates, they, they, they were very disappointed that they were losing money. So they beat them and they put them in jail and they kept them in jail. And when they decided to let them out of jail, when they found out that they were Roman citizens and they decided to let them out of jail, they said, okay, open the door, you can go. And, and I think it was Paul um, said, are you kidding me? I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot do this to me. He stuck up for his civil rights as a citizen. And I think that this is what's missing. We don't take our experiences and, we, and, and use them. We're in the book, we're in the, the newspaper, and we're saying, they are giants, we cannot win this. But I would dare to say that if you come down to the street level, if you come down and pick the right type of people, if you take the time to listen to their stories, and help them refine those stories. And you take them to the tables that you are going to, and they can tell their stories. Those are going to be the people that make the difference. 
And so I, I just want, if you don't leave with anything else, it doesn't take much. I was a little grasshopper, but I'm not a grasshopper anymore. Glad to be among the giants. And now I see myself as a giant because the grasshopper is them. They're little pesty insects, <laughs> okay? And I, coming from the projects, I'm good on stopping on a roach. So, <laughs> so, so I, I do want to say um, that GPIO is also fighting for some legislative work. And before I leave, um, some of the same things that you are, um, reform for pretrial and bail reform, also repeal and mandatory minimums for drug sentences, eliminate and excessive fees and fines that keep these people in a cycle um, of poverty and then putting them back in jail on fine times, and eliminating solitary confinement. And so when you really think about dehumanization, that solitary confinement is really big. But I'm going to end here because I know that I shouldn't be going on so long because there's another story that I like. We're in the book of Joshua, um, and Lazarus, Lazarus dies. And so he tells the people to come, Mary and Martha, you know, to come and to roll the stone back. There's a lot that goes in between. Um, you might know the story. And he says, roll the stone away. And she says, but he's been in there four days. He probably stinks. Just imagine. He's been dead for four days. Imagine the stink. And they, they didn't want to do it, but Jesus says, no, do it. And the miracle was not so much. When they opened it up, Jesus yelled loudly, Lazarus, get up. I don't think that was the, the biggest miracle. I think the, the biggest miracle was the one that followed because there was a crowd that followed them to watch this. And that crowd, he said to the crowd afterwards, take off his death clothes. Mm. Jesus is admonishing us to do something. We are part of the community resurrection, whether it's being spiritually dead or economically dead, as somebody said earlier. He told the community to take off the clothes, and that's the miracle. The miracle is you getting out of these seats after this conference and doing something. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. I feel so honored to be on this panel, and thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people who made this day possible. I want to begin with a question for all of us. Um, what does it mean to worship a god born of a Palestinian Jewish girl executed by an empire naked as a common criminal. We are in the grips of a religio-legal system. Let's think back to the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705 that 
was supposed to regulate the relationships between the so-called free citizens and the so-called slaves. And it states that all Negroes, mulattoes, and non-Christians shall be real estate, right, chattel. This is this continuation of racial violence from plantations to prisons that we are witnessing right now. Mass incarceration, I wanna, I wanna pick up and frame um, some thoughts today on the challenge to faith-based leaders and also to young activists, theologians about how to sustain activism. Mass incarceration exists not only as a human rights crisis, but also a theological one. Our prison system is rife with theological hypocrisy. Religious capital is placed on virtues like grace and mercy, and the system, bless you, continues. Um, and there's scriptural mandate to care for those in prison, and yet our current policy is deeply influenced by religious values that suggest that people are beyond the redemption so exalted in traditional Christianity, in traditional Christianity, um, as if theology itself is imprisoned. Um, this, this religious um, paradox, I, 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 I find myself in the territory we call religion, and I'm definitely not a traditional um, scholar. Uh, and I've come to believe that religion itself is a paradox, both ideologically and practically. My research at the intersections of theology, education, and the US penal system attends to many aspects of this paradox, paradox, both the most damaging and the most promising. Because the general practice of religion simultaneously saves and damns, heals and harms, frees and yokes, I have long considered religion to be a means of division even in its very unity. Religious doctrine holds for me both an indictment and an invitation, an indictment of what I consider to be the perversion of particular religious values when, for example, justice is invoked to sanction cruelty and the invitation for people of faith to hold religion accountable to itself, to practice the religious values of mercy, radical love, and forgiveness that it preaches. Our culture is mesmerized by the myth that violence will redeem us. This myth is rooted in the religious ideology that claims we can right wrongs and heal wounds through isolation and retribution. We therefore exact violent punishment in an effort to institute justice. Indeed, theologian Walter Wink has written that this myth of redemptive violence is the spirituality of the modern world. In this system, prisons are the tools of so-called justice, and with these tools, the isolated become the enemy, oftentimes seamlessly the enemy becomes the other, the one who deserves harm, the one who may legally and righteously be violated. If we can just get the bad guy, right? Popeyes, Brutus, Osama bin Laden, Judas, we will be redeemed, 
safe and free. To violate the enemy in the name of justice is as common as a cartoon villain, but in prison that kind of violence is not abstract. Whether justice is framed in terms of freedom, equity, opportunity, protection, or collective responsibility to be effective, that is to affect real resolution, it must be a process that reveals itself in relationship to realizing our own and each other's humanity. And under this framework, the criminal justice system in place in this country scarcely deserves to include justice in its name. Therefore, I refer to our punishment system, our punishment sector. I think beyond using humanizing language, uh, we also have to think about what it means to place criminal injustice next to each other again and again and again and talk about resource officers in schools when we're talking about a para paramilitary mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we call, we call uh, rooms <clears throat> where people are not locked inside naked with nothing but a grate on the floor to relieve themselves with padded walls covered with blood and feces because people will resist with whatever they have. We call them safety cells. We have to re-examine on every level and be careful as activists and deep thinkers what, what is the language that we use. By Listening carefully, as Glenn so um, powerfully reminds us, by listening carefully to the voices of people who are most intimate with the ways we punish in the United States, we may better understand the systems of domination at play. And we must be steadfast in our determination to make community justice the bedrock of public policy making. Uh, Professor Jennings reminded us that to show up at local zoning meetings is to participate in some of the most important moral meetings in our community. That's activism at the local level. I want to... Um, end with suggesting, and, and also holding up again this, this Rikers, this movement to close Rikers, will be here on November 8th and is also part of the transformative justice series um, that is now in its second year at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. And it's, it's moving beyond the ideas of restorative justice. Um, was just speaking to a student of mine in prison who's serving uh, uh, a triple life sentence, condemned to die three times for a crime he committed as a child. How can we restore what in and of itself is not just? Punishment has become so cruel that it no longer has integrity. So not only do we have to transform ourselves and heal relationships, we have to transform structures. Um, so I'm gonna submit that justice is a verb and faith is a verb and ethics is a verb and so how do we hold it all? How do we bear witness to suffering, inspired by ethical principles, and be steadfast in our commitment to render the world more humane and just? 
How do we reconcile being focused on Instagram when we know people are being tortured at this very moment? Each of us, I believe, embodies profound contradictions. I waited tables in fancy New York restaurants for almost 10 years as I worked um, in prisons. And as I spent my days um, struggling to, to be part of changing policy that locks people in cages for illicit drug use, at night I served champagne in a short skirt to VIP customers as they snorted cocaine in cigar rooms protected by private security. Maybe our job is to hold the pain of contradictions. That's what it means to be ethical. To be strong enough to accept the cognitive dissonance between what we know to be true and how we live. Because if we care about injustice and cannot tolerate lying to ourselves, the more we wake up, the worse it feels. Perhaps part of the ethical imperative is to hold that pain, to live fully and vigorously commit ourselves to what we believe and to what we do not understand. And in order to be love warriors and sustain our work for social justice, we must also insist on joy. <laughs> I'm gonna end with a quote from Ella Baker. She reminds us that we who believe in freedom cannot rest until the reins are in the hands of the young who dare to run against the storm. Thank you. Good afternoon. I am thankful to be invited to be a part of this conversation. Thank you to Professor Potts, Professor Sanchez, um, my colleagues and uh, panelists, and I am thrilled to be back here at HDS. My favorite part um, is to see my comrades, colleagues, and friends with whom we engage in beautiful struggle, a struggle that we have inherited and one that we are possessed to continue um, because we recognize that ideas have consequences. And in these hallowed halls, if nothing else, we come here to wrestle and struggle uh, not just create and produce, but also disrupt some that have for ages been problematic. Um, in the interest of time, I've been cutting and editing. I'm not so sure how adept I, I will be, um, given that the best part of the conversation is, is including each and every one of your voices. So. 
Um, I will raise uh, a couple things um, and try to get through quickly. Um, first, this I, Christianity, right, has in its imaginary um, not been exactly an honest representation of the value and the promises that it holds. Uh, Christianity colludes with the legislature to enforce rule of law and customs to control people. You started in what, 1705, um, I went back to 1492 when <laughs> that was the point right, of galvanizing these um, categories of humanity and then creating um, hierarchies of humanity, um, some savages that then perpetuated the logics um, of, 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 of codifying humanity that made the logical outcome of it to be that it's fine to enslave people that are not considered to be of equal value or worth or humanity. Christianity colluded and has continued to collude with this logic, and we are dealing with the fruit of that. You know, like some of us were not surprised at the political moment and the turn of events that we're all living through from the bastion of uh, leadership of, of the empire. Some of us are not surprised. It's the logical outcome of some choices that we make day in and day out about who matters and who does not. However, the gifts of a Christian ethic that my dear sister Kaya talked about um, to reimagine and promote and advocate for a kind of human dignity that then manifest in not just ideas and constructs, but then how now do we live our lives? How now do we live? The carceral state is more guided by an ethic of capitalism and the racialized human stratification that emerges from the imagination of the nation state that has always rendered poor black and brown people the most vulnerable, right, to the draconian uh, effects of this moral corruption. As Christianity has been, was co-opted during enslavement of black bodies to reflect the, log reflect the logics of human dehumanization so too that evolution is the carceral state and has maintained that of not only punishment for disobedient to the master or masters of the law, but also an uphill battle to truly embody a gospel that represent a revolutionary imagination, a decolonized humanity in which all persons are indeed created of infinite sacred worth and value. And if we hold to these ethics, then logically it would seem then that the resources that we have, 
Because isn't that, after all, how we also represent our priorities, right? But as a society, the resources that we have would go to upholding, not building prisons, but building human lives, preventing the things that are precursors to right? what leads often to the struggle and the wrestling and the choices that some are imprisoned for, that others equally make choices but are protected by privilege of race and class, right, who suffer within this caste system that I've, that I've already described and pay death-dealing consequences for generations because we do not incarcerate individuals, we incarcerate families and communities. Michelle Alexander tries to teach us best in her work in the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of color blindness. She writes, the genius of the current class system and what most distinguish it from its predecessors is that it appears voluntary. People choose to commit crimes and that's why they are locked up or locked out, we are told. This feature makes the politics of responsibility particularly tempting. As it appears, the system can be avoided with good behavior, but therein lies the trap. All of us are criminals, says Alexander. All of us violate the law at some point in our lives. If the worst act that you have ever done is to speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, you have put yourselves and others more at risk of harm than someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their living room. Yet there are people in the United States serving life sentences, that being their first time drug offense. This is virtually unheard of anywhere else in the world. Mass incarceration in the United States tells us where we are with with ideologies of race. And practices a form of Christian ethics that truly does not value all lives equally. Questions of humanity, second chances, etc. There are systems to draw from in Norway and Germany, and I have delineated some of the, the, the re-imaginative ways that we could think of. Um, I have also gone through to delineate the ways in which misdemeanor justice, have you all heard that term? It emerged out of the uprising of Ferguson uh, when the Department of Justice went into that community and it isn't just Ferguson, but we had the benefit because of the uprising in Ferguson, the Department of Justice came back to rend the veil of a system, a caste system that was brooded in, 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 in white supremacy, racialized, uh, targeting of black communities through uh, systems of fines, right? 
and targeting the black community. It, 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 I, will, I will go through just a bit of it and I will close uh, with the reimagination and normalization that a principle of equal humanity and sacred worth and dignity of all people can perhaps get us there. And one of the greatest call and mandate of the church is recognizing that profligating its ethic and the pope and the promise that the church has also bears with it not simply going into prisons, right, and doing and serving uh, charitable good for those who are incarcerated, but to get involved and put resources there, put the multiple millions of dollars in resources that are put into building funds, how we find money, right, within our institutions that are well healed, right? It isn't enough for the prosperity gospel to extract multiple millions of dollars from poor communities to build gigantic edifices trying to keep up with the white churches that are well healed and have millions of dollars, right? That the greatest challenge that they have is reimagining how to modernize their building with a multi-million dollar capital campaign. But yet you have people who are poor and poverty is a precursor to the behaviors that land one into prisons according to the logics of the system. I suggest that the gospel then calls us then to reevaluate our material culture and what we really value. Not to just preach it on Sundays, but to put your money where your mouth is. And the greatest challenge of that is desegregating our communities, de imperializing our gospel, because it is this imperial gospel that stills between January and June, rather September of 2016, 2017, 97,482 persons suspected of living illegally in the United States was in, were imprisoned by ICE. And so I'm not going to get to go through the criminal misdemeanor conversation and read about the German system, right? Their whole uh, 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 prison system, because they learned. They learned from the Holocaust, and it impacted. Apparently, we have not learned from the enslavement and the genocide of indigenous populations in the US. We really have not yet learned our lessons. It isn't enough, enough to do patchwork reformation. Some people have all the time in the world. Those whose mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, daughters and sons, communities are in prison. We are out of time. The German system starts with a constitution that says human dignity is inviolable. To protect it and defend it is the duty of all state authority. The offices of the government, the prisons, the laws, says that by serving the sentence, a prisoner is to be able. This is what they call the, the re-socialization, right? They ought to be able to be reintegrated into society and to lead a life without recommitting 
without recidivism. Therefore, the model of the prison system then is to treat and accord this very dignity, to model it within the prison system. And a process of re-socialization to then protect the individual as, and in so by doing, protect the community. I am also suggesting the modes in which we generate criminality begins with our very idea of how we imagine human beings and how we do not. Thank you. So we've come to that special point in our worship service where we worship in giving. We pass the plate. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, this is certainly a joy uh, and an honor and a privilege. And so I recognize the hour is long. You have heard many great and wonderful things. So I just want to posit a few more things. Uh, into your spirit that as you go out and continue to do this work, you might reflect on uh, some questions uh, that can lead and guide us. And one of the things that often pops into my mind is, you know, what is the will of God? Particularly as we think about and contemplate this justice work. When we think about dealing with uh, oppressed peoples, oppressed communities, what is the will of God? And what is our responsibility in relation to what we understand that will to be? What are we willing to do? What are we willing to advocate for? What are we willing to sacrifice? In what ways are we complicit uh, in perpetuating systems of oppression. It's hard to put ourselves in a position and see our, or put ourselves, uh, look at ourselves in positions uh, of, of power or look at ourselves as people who are perpetuating oppression. I think it's easy to point out individuals or institutions and say they are uh, the problem. They are the ones that are uh, what is wrong with us, or they are the ones that are creating or doing the harm, right? We can have progressive values uh, till the day ends. You know, I believe in prison abolition. Uh, I believe in disarming police and ultimately the elimination uh, of police forces, right? And, and those are good and uh, lofty ideals to have. And, you know, we never get there if we never have that that conversation because there was a point in time where people were saying, I believe in the abolition of slavery. And folks were just like, what are you talking about? That's our, you know, that is the source of our income. That is our economic system. Um, so we can have these progressive ideas and values and beliefs in ourselves and who we, we are, but when we are not advocating uh, for the destruction of systems of oppression, when we're not actively engaged in dismantling uh, systems of oppression, it raises this question, are we complicit in it? I think about my time as a prosecutor, and 
maybe that's not that far of a stretch to say, well, yeah, clearly you were sending people to jail. But there was a role that I played. I was a part of the system and I felt pride in what I did as someone who advocated on behalf of victims. People were victimized by other people. There was harm that was done to them. And even though I struggled with the role of me being a black man sending other black people to jail, I felt that there was a responsibility that I had to the communities who were victimized. For the mother who was, or the grandmother who was coming home after a long day at work and had a bunch of kids hanging on her stoop, making it difficult to walk up into her house or enjoy a peace of mind at night, or people who were complaining about quality of life issues. And I had this mindset that I was doing the right thing and that the system of justice operated, maybe not always fairly, but it operated to maintain our safety and our security. The reality is some of those quality of life crimes are problems, right? There are people who live in communities who have problems with vagrancy and trespassing and prostitution and theft and drug abuse and violence. But does the solution necessarily need to be incarceration and detention and police violence? There were, you know, a, a case that sticks out in my mind of, of a young man who, again, thinking that I'm not a part of the problem but rather the solution, uh, was charged with possession with intent to distribute marijuana within mm. 500 feet of a park. So he wasn't selling weed. Uh, he was just possessing weed in a way that was packaged such that the police believe he intended to sell it. And therefore that made him eligible for an enhancement of being prosecuted within a certain distance of a park. 18 years old, no prior record, and his mother was in court and said, um, you know, I don't want to see my son go to jail. That school zone charge carried a mandatory minimum offense or a mandatory minimum sentence, which was two years in the district court. So he would have to go to jail for two years and serve every day of that two years without any parole, without any good time, without any early release, without any furloughs, 365 days twice. But we had a practice in our office that um, we would dismiss the mandatory enhancement in exchange for a sentence that we as the prosecutors felt was appropriate. And so I gave this young man a two for suspended for two. So he had a two year sentence hanging over his head for two years. And his mother, who was in the court with him, uh, even though he had no record and he had no uh, prior infractions with the law, said we'll take that because it meant her son didn't have to go to jail that night. I have no idea whatever happened to that young man I don't know if he had a probation officer that was a jerk and violated him for a technical violation. I don't know if he had a probation officer that was somebody who was helpful, that was a part of the solution and helped him navigate the criminal justice system and not get any other infractions or arrests and stay out of trouble and not have to worry about being sent away because if you get violated on your probation and you have a suspended sentence, you automatically go away for those two years. And I felt like I did a good thing because he didn't go to jail right away. And so that is part of the problem. There is a framework, there is an ideology, there is an understanding of how the system works and what is good and what is bad about it. The narrative is beginning to push that and change that 
thanks to a lot of people who have been doing tremendous advocacy work, mm -hmm. thanks to Michelle Alexander's book that really has cracked open this conversation and made people begin to understand the problems within the carceral state. But I think there's this critical question about what is the role uh, of the church and what is our responsibility. And so it's cabined by these notions of, you know, what is the will of God? And what are our responsibilities in relation to that? And so therefore, I beseech you, my brothers and sisters. Say mm -hmm. I beseech you. To not see now, and then you know it, and then you don't know it. <laughs> By the mercies of God, to present, there we go, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable <clears throat> service. What are we supposed to do in light of all of the privileges we have had? What are we required to do in light of the life that we have lived and the places that we have access to and the conversations that we have? What is reasonable for us to do? Right? We need to be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What are we doing? What are we not doing? What are the conversations that we're having? What is the advocacy that we are doing? What are we willing to sacrifice ourselves? Sometimes it's about sacrificing our understanding of how the system works as a good system. Sometimes it's sacrificing our position of authority so that someone who is distant from the positions of authority can step into that role and now have access and entree to the positions of power. Sometimes it's standing on the picket line and actually sacrificing our bodies and being subject to arrest. We need to transform our mind and have it be renewed and understand what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And so when you question and wonder what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, you think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane asking God to take that cup from him. But he said, not my will, but your will. And what was his will? That he would be sacrificed, not so that everybody else could come along and suffer and be sacrificed as well, but so that we would not have to be. And so maybe that is the perfect will of God. The punishment has already been paid for, depending on your orientation and view of uh, religious doctrine. But there is something to be said about what does it mean for us to be followers or for people who are of the Christian faith to be followers of someone who was sacrificed and criminalized. There is a greater calling for us to operate in different spaces. There is a greater calling for us to make sacrifices that are deep and that are painful. And there is a greater calling for us to transform our minds, to really think differently about what the end result is. Do we want a more just criminal justice system? Or do we want to eliminate that system and have a more restorative and community-based system? 
We never get there if we never have the conversation. We never get there if we never begin to take the steps and make the sacrifices to push ourselves there. So there is a lot of advocacy that is happening. Uh, we are operating in spaces within the legislature, within the halls of power to make tweaks around the edges, but that is incremental. We need a transformative move, a move of faith. It needs to be a moral movement. Right? I, I, I don't know if any of you all were uh, at uh, Trinity Church last night with Reverend uh, Dr. William Barber, um, amazing individual. And um, you know, he talked about the creation of a poor people's movement and revisiting that movement. And you know, he talked about Luke 4.18 when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, it has empowered me to preach liberty to uh, uh, the, the poor and, and to set the captives free. And he said, any uh, good news, any evangelical movement has to be one that is rooted in dismantling forms of oppression. And so there is something powerful to be said about a church that is evangelizing in resistance to forms uh, of oppression. So thank you for uh, this opportunity, and I look forward to being a part of this transformative movement. That, that clock is a bit fast. And I, so I, I do want to give us a couple minutes for questions. Um, I think some of our panelists may need to leave for reasons of transportation, but maybe if we could just stay for maybe 10 more minutes and take uh, um, some questions from our audience in that time. Thank you all for your comments. I think you all may have touched on this in various ways, but I was just wondering your thoughts on what is the role of punishment and incarceration, if any, in an ideal criminal justice system? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I know a lot of, I'm sorry, I know a lot of times that um, I had a conversation with a woman that was in one of my um, spiritual development groups at church, and she says, good, they get what they deserve. And I said, are you sure they're getting what they deserve? Are you treating a drug problem with punishment as opposed to treatment? We have a drug crisis. And so holding somebody accountable to me does not necessarily mean punishment. Um, I think that people need to be held accountable. There needs to be some way where the victim, and somebody talked about um, victims, um, Vashant. I'm a victim, but I'm still out here doing the work because I don't want that those people who come back into the community to do to somebody else what was done to my nephew. And so, Yes, I want, I want God's justice, whatever that looks like. I, I, and I don't know really what that looks like. I want the case to be closed. I want the person to be found. And yes, but that doesn't mean that I want that person to be locked up for 20 or 30 years. Because 98% of the people come back to the community. And that person who committed that crime is coming back to the same community they left my community. So do I want that person to come back whole? Or do I want that person to come back more disturbed 
than before they went in. Can, can, yeah. can I add to that? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I have been a huge critic of this bipartisan coalition that everyone's been putting stock in uh, to undo mass incarceration. I mean, it was a bipartisan coalition that got us here. Um, I'm not uh, putting, I'm not making my bets on the comeback coalition to get us out of this, particularly because the Christian conservative right um, is part of uh, what cre helped create this bipartisan coalition, right? President Bush talked about this during the State of Union Address in 2004, opened the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, pushed a lot of resources through there to the Christian conservative right. But if you believe in, if, if you believe in reentry, if you believe in heaven, then you probably believe in hell also, and you believe in punishment. And we have a criminal justice system that has worked for some and not worked for others for hundreds of years, right? The best outcome uh, you can get in our criminal justice system comes from white skin and privilege. And if we treat everyone the way we treat those folks, we probably have a much more fair criminal justice system. But until we think about things like proportionality and parsimony, I have a difficult time having a conversation about punishment, especially because the deprivation of liberty to me seems to be the punishment. And if you go, if you look at other countries and other systems, everything from there is about restoration yeah. in, 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 in most systems, except here in the United States, it's all about perpetual punishment. And I'm speaking as someone who, after 13 years of serving time, gets invited to the White House with a black president who says he cares about ending mass incarceration and find out I can't get into the White House because of a 21-year-old conviction. That's the country we live in. And so if you start with punishment in a country like this, where the underpinnings of our criminal justice system are all about punitiveness and punishment, then what you get is a scarlet letter that never goes away, particularly for communities of color and poor people. Go. Um, so I'm not sure I'm going to be very helpful because I, I think that this idea and notion of punishment not only emerging out of, you know, within a Christian uh, sort of uh, framework, emerges out of the heaven and hell dichotomy. And at the same time, those who have power and can perpetuate and dictate and construct a system do so in part because of fear of punishment, right? A fear, because that very logic and belief system, fear retaliation, right? And so as a part of the racialized logic, you know, the separation, the mechanisms of control, not just extraction of revenue from, from, from the bodies of black people, but literally fearing what would really happen if people who were the benefit of enslaved societies or, or the benefactors thereof in, in the United States were to receive the punishment that is deserved out of that kind of humanity. And then who gets punished and who does not? Which crimes are visible and which ones are not? The mandatory minimums emerged out of beginning the crack epidemic, which predominantly impacted poor black and brown communities, right? The opioid community gets a public health response, compassion, and empathy because of who exactly is impacted. Do you see, so we have the capacity to do it. It's just that those who hold power and resources then to reimagine a different framework for a society will not do it. And ultimately behind that is control, dominance, and fear of punishment because the resources 
right? And the veils are there to construct the privacy of cocaine snorting, mm -hmm. right? Of white young adults be, being having the privilege of drying out, not being fined and not being able to pay it, drying out and they send you on your merry way. Sandra Bland did not have that option. And this is, I think, a greater question, right? Why are we so committed to punishment rather than rehumanizing, re-socializing, and recognize that that person, right, in need of compassion and redemption is a reflection of all of us? The crack epidemic, um, no one has, has, again, reminded us that Nixon's people did it on purpose. That they admitted to putting that in our communities on purpose. Mm. And so where is the punishment for that? If we're going to talk punishment, where's the punishment for that ultra drug dealer? You know what I mean? And so. Race plays a huge role, and until we stop thinking about this as crime and punishment, and start thinking about how do we construct a society that is just, okay? And that includes all of our institutions, not just the, the prison system, but all of our institutions. Right. And so as a, as a professor, I've had students come to me and say, I'm gonna major in criminal justice, and I said, why? And they said, because I want to help our people. I'm like, why don't you major in English then? Right. Major in history. Because if you major in criminal justice, you're going to require that that system continue to operate so you can get a job. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. So let's major in something else and then go and help our people not get involved in that system. Try to keep it away from us. But if you think about majoring in it, you've already decided that, that system's a good system. Thank you. Um, in, in, in an effort to reimagine justice, I've been asking students in prison and at Harvard to um, reflect, to write to themselves uh, an early memory of being punished as a child. And I've collected many over the years, and whether it's a kind of um, seemingly, uh, w whether it's a withdrawal of love timeout version or a corporal punishment version, the child themselves, for the most part, doesn't remember the transgression and doesn't think it was just. And I think if we're going to reimagine justice, we have to tell really painful truths about the way we imagine God is punishing us, mm. the way we punish our children, mm. the way we punish ourselves. And this question of what is God's justice, I had the honor of sitting next to Professor Jennings last night at dinner and after hours of breaking bread and conversation, I had to, as someone who wasn't baptized, um, ask him this question that I love to ask of smart, faithful, Christian folks, which is, and what do we do about Judas? What about this one safe scapegoat that we need for this narrative of salvation who is eternally this evil enemy and, and help me understand? And it was so deep the way, uh, and, and I've been my, orienting my work around this punishment paradigm. It seems we've got this notion of original sin and we're justly condemned by God and it's just this punishment 
all day, every day, in and out, through and through. And he helped me to see that there is something in a particular, though minority, reading of Christianity that God's justice is actually the terror of the truth that if Jesus is your advocate standing between you and hell, then no one is going to be punished, mm. that no one's going <clears> to <throat> suffer, which made me humble about how, how I ask questions of Christianity mm. and punishment and questions of justice and what could be God's justice. Mm. Yeah. Um, so my question is, I think that Ta-Nehisi Coates has made a good argument at how the black church, uh, the sort of romantic language in the black church is, is torn away at the, at the, um, the romantic language in the black church is sort of turn, torn away at the immediacy and the urgency of, of the black liberation issue. And so I wonder how you folks uh, negotiate that or reconcile those two ideas. Do you repeat that quickly? The so I think that, so Ta-Nehisi, uh, so not outside of Ta-Nehisi, um, I think that there are some people that fear <clears throat> this very, like, risk, like this, the, the sort of romantic language that happens in the black church about an afterlife and, mm. and we have to apologize and, and let's mm. be the better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he thinks, or he is arguing in some of his, in, in Between the World and Me, that that has torn away at the, at the urgency around, around the issue outside mm. of it. Um, and so I wonder how, as, as, as a church-going person, how you reconcile those, right? Like, I believe in God, but I know that there's also something that I should be fighting for, and when do I forgive, when do I not forgive, that kind of... Mm -hmm. This is why everybody <laughs> leaning to me. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a challenge, right? Because there's this notion around the fierce urgency of now, and, and instead of waiting for the afterlife for, um, you know, this, this whole notion of going from labor to reward. Uh, has got so many folks jacked up that they don't speak out uh, against injustices and you know the the theology of suffering that um, you know we have either one somehow either earned our suffering or that in order to achieve a reward that we have to endure uh, the the suffering and I think that is a it is a tremendous problem um, and and the way that uh, I reconcile it for for myself and then you know, any of the, the preaching or teaching that I do is, is highlighting the, uh, the, the missionary work uh, of Christ and the disciples, which was to alleviate suffering uh, for the people who were presently uh, suffering. Um, and that the, the, you know, that the that notions of salvation are not separate from our current existence. Um, you know, they, they like seek out your soul salvation with uh, fear and trembling, and it's like it, it's it's a process. It's going on, but you just don't put it on hold until you die. Um, but I, I think he's right in in pointing that out because there there are folks from generations past who will say, you know, let let's just you know just wait on the Lord. Um, and uh, but I think. 
I think there were also people who have said because of the sacrifice of Christ or because of the activism of Paul and Silas that we are instructed to go out and, and battle. We may endure um, suffering, but that does not prohibit or preclude us from, um, from seeking justice. Um, and I just want to say somebody earlier on the, pan, the earlier panel said that they're focused on them. And I do believe that community is important, but I don't think that we pay enough to our own selves. We do everything in community. And I think that sometimes we just need to steal away. And when people say, I'll just wait on the Lord, the Lord's waiting on us. Hmm. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible says that Jesus wept. He wept because we don't get it. You know, we get caught up in all of this theology and intellectual. It's good, but at some times you gotta stay away. And you have to have that personal relationship and connection with God. So some of these questions that you're answering, you know, God may tell somebody right now for you, yes, may tell me no at that very same time we're asking for the same thing. But try it and see. I, I think that, you know, when you want to talk about uh, practical theology, you know, what, what does that look like? It means doing it. Faith without works is dead. And so no matter what we're engaged in, forgiveness, as somebody said, is a verb. When do I forgive? I forgive all the time. You know why? Because you're not going to tie my life up. You're not going to tie my life up. I forgave the person who killed my 17-year-old son that I, that I basically raised because my sister was a drug addict. And I was in church, and everybody, Sister Bev, come on up. Let's pray for Sister Bev. And I went up because they were supposed to lay hands on me, and I was like, that's not the prayer that I want. Mm. I'm okay. The prayer that I want is for that lost soul. And so I forgave that person and freed myself up to be able to be helpful to other people, to be able to do this type of advocacy work. And so I know that we do things in community, but still away and really look at where you are and start asking important questions because God's going to answer you. I, I can't always give you the answers. And I'm like, why did Michelle invite me here? I don't have half the answers, you know? But some, I think that some of our answers are very simple. Remember when they said um, that the, the guy, Robert um, Folk, and everything that I, that I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten? Everything I needed to know, I learned at Vacation Bible School. The golden rules, treat others, as, treat others as you want to be treated. Would you want to be forgiven? You know, people talking about throw the book at them when they do something. You know, take that concept, throw the book at them, but your book is the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. So we're throwing all of these books at people, throw the book right back at them. So when people say, you know, they, um, well, they committed a crime. They should get what they deserve. Throw it back on them. What does the, what does the book say? Did, mm. did you get what you deserved? Ooh. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Throw the book at them. Mm. 
see you twisting before death. Um, I, I don't um, have a, a, a well-thought-out answer, but it is a question. Can you all hear me? Okay, great. Thank you. It is a question that I think is, is important as well as instructive because you, you, you located it within the black church. And you signified, not being familiar with all of the context for ta quotation, but you're signifying something that is, is um, pervasive when we have public tragedy, like the shooting in um, uh, South Carolina, the Dillon Roof shooting in South Carolina, the, the, the murder of black bodies, um, black people, public, that, that has become public. Um, there seemed to be a moral value placed on black people's capacity to suffer and to immediately say, I forgive you when we don't seem to place that same moral value judgment on the victims in, in Las Vegas and nobody heart ever really jumps and feels the kind of pressure and the kind of gaze to embody and walk and live in some, some, some moral integrity rooted in this tradition. That's where my interrogation, and I don't have an answer, but I feel in my gut, it, you know, walking through interpersonal struggle and feeling and learning compassion, even through suffering, and learning one's own uh, participation in our collective suffering and our individual grievance, uh, uh, grievances that we cause, right? And those interrelational relationships is one thing, but is this public performance of forgiveness rooted in a tradition that doesn't equally mediate that on everyone. And I find that to be further dehumanizing of black people. Whether or not we do that work internally to integrate, right, both our faith and our humanity, and that isn't, I can't judge it. I'm just saying I have questions about the, that public uh, performance of, 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 of faith. Thank you to our panel for wonderful presentation. So uh, a little under uh, 24 hours, we've come to the end of our time, um, and I feel like I should say something valedictory, uh, but I shouldn't. First of all, because I don't have words adequate to what we have heard the last 24 hours, and also to say something valedictory would be to imply that if this is over, and the story continues and the struggle continues. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you for the work you will do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. <laughs>